0: Hey, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. So this is the Friday afternoon before Labor Day weekend, and it's our first Labor Day podcast, so to speak. And I wanted to just touch base with you all because there's been a lot of news coming out of California. And one of the big stories that is coming out of California is the recent passage of the FAST Act, which affects All fast food workers throughout California. It's a statewide initiative put forth by the unions. It is now on its way to Governor Newsom's desk. And as California goes, so goes the rest of the nation. So I thought it might be interesting to find out more about the FAST Act and see how it portends to the fast food industry out in California and potentially the rest of the country. In any case, to do that, I wanted to reach out to somebody who's been on the program before, and that's Lance Lance Christensen from the California Policy Center. And so he was gracious enough to come on on a Friday afternoon uh, before Labor Day weekend when everybody's off cooking hamburgers and hot dogs and all that sort of stuff for three days. And he spent a little bit of time this afternoon talking about the FAST Act and some of the other California initiatives, if you will, that are going on, including AB5. In any case, Here's Lance Christensen. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Lance Christensen, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio on Labor Day weekend.
1: How are you? Uh, Peter, living the dream. So good to be back with you.
0: So there is so much going on in California, and we're posting article after article because you guys just generate so much news out there. I thought we could kind of um, do a refresher or an update on AB 5, you guys just passed AB 257, I think, and there's a couple other ABs out there. And I think you mentioned last time you were on Labor Relations Radio that, you know, as California goes, so goes the rest of the nation. So kind of as a Labor Day tribute, so to speak.
1: Well, AB 5, I mean, it's kind of the the bill that you're seeing pop up, up everywhere else now. The irony of that bill is back when, it was being considered in the legislature, and uh, pre-disgrace Governor Cuomo said, we're not going to follow California on this because it's a complete job killer for our people in New York. And um, whenever Biden was elected president, he basically took a whole bunch of California advocates to D.C., and they've seen the power of AB5 in recruiting Union membership and increasing their power and control over a lot of the, the politicking, policymaking. And so it's starting to spread in DC, but now it's coming back and, you know, a in California and other aspects where AB 5 didn't really have control over uh, certain issues. So we're watching the unions take full control of Sacramento. They think they're going to do something right, but it's the parasites eating the host at this point in time.
0: So for the listeners, AB5, um, is the independent contractor bill, or as the unions would say, it's the misclassification bill to address misclassification of workers and it imposes an ABC test, right? And that's what, that's what they're trying to impose in the pro act and at the state level in various
1: States. Yes. And so when you have these complex tests, make it difficult for an employer and an, an, either an employer or a consultant to have a mutually beneficial agreement about work hours, about the kind of job and conditions, um, then it becomes very problematic for somebody who's paying the, the wages or the salary or the contract to continue to work in that space. And so eventually, m- many of these jobs fall apart because an owner of a business isn't going to want to incur more costs and more headaches. And what the legislature is trying to do is force that upon a lot of people, basically saying these guys have all the money in the world, right? They make, they make, they have businesses that they're doing things and and they're getting revenue, pay workers what they're worth. That's fine. What you're gonna find out is that in a lot of situations, a robot or a kiosk can do it much cheaper and doesn't complain about a situation.
0: Well, recently, and I want to say it was about a month ago, um, is the U.S. Supreme Court basically did not hear or or declined the writ of certiorari of the AB5 challenge that the Trucking Association or the Independent Truckers out in California um, had filed lawsuit against. So the Supreme Court turned down the hearing of it, and they shut down the Port of Oakland, Right.
1: Yes. And part of the, the, the legal battle to simplify it or oversimplify it was that truckers believed that they were um, controlled under federal law because of the way that the interstate trucking works, that AB5 didn't have a holding over them. And they just weren't successful, the route um, that they took through the, the courts and the appellate courts and the federal level, and since the Supreme Court wasn't willing to hear them, then you've got a problem where now they're going to be sucked in to a lot of the negotiation between those that want things delivered um, and those that do the delivering. And it's it's very problematic in California. I mean, 20% of the country's agriculture and produce is produced here in California. You've got massive ports that come from all parts of the Pacific, uh, including China and Hong Kong, a lot of the major manufacturing. And if you can't get things off of the boats and to the inlands, to middle America or anywhere else, you have a massive problem across the board.
0: So do you know if, well, so they were shot down. Do you know of any other suits against AB5?
1: I think there's a handful that have kind of stuck around for various um jobs that may or may not be included in there. There's a lot of ambiguity when you read through uh, the bill on AB five and they went through and had, had over us, you know, several other bills, various carve outs to protect um, different classes of workers that made the correct political donations to the right people. And right. Uh, I, I wish it were more, con- more thoughtful than that, but it's not It's in these legislative sessions in Sacramento, it's a pay to play scheme. And a lot of businesses know this, and that's why you're watching them. They're leaving like crazy. In fact, at California Policy Center, where I'm vice president, we actually track this. We call it the book of exoduses. And every time a business leaves or just kind of withers down or just have, maintains a small footprint in California, we track it. And it's a massive amount of economic loss in the state of California. that will continue to be exacerbated if you cannot move materials across the state
0: yeah Gavin Newsom just came out and said, you guys are creating jobs
1: um we're creating jobs because he basically killed them all off of the pandemic yeah uh, you know it, it's like
0: <laughs> I was curious about that because yeah as com- these you guys are creating jobs as compared to what. 12 months ago, or I I wasn't sure where he got his stats.
1: I think he always cherry picks his stats, right? Um, Gavin Newsom. So here's an interesting part. When he uh, was confronting the pandemic at the very beginning in 2020, he wrote a letter to President Trump, and he claimed that 56% of Californians could be infected with COVID and, you know, many of them possibly die. Now, again, a lot of us didn't know what was going on at the time, but it was that sort of hysteria. Now, if California has, 20, has 40 million people, 56% close to what, 23, 24 million people? Um, so he basically used that fear-mongering to go and to close down almost every business in the state. And the ones that were able to open up were the ones that made the political donations. And the closer and closer, if you watch California politics at all, we had the recall election last September, almost a year ago next week. And as the, as the signatures increased for the petition to put the recall on the ballot, the more and more open things got. but they would accelerate if you paid a political donation into a stock call campaign. So any enterprising reporter can go through and actually look at all the money that was paid into the recall and track back and always connect the dots between those that made the payments to those that opened up the fastest. And that's the sort of gamesmanship that happens here all the time. And Gavin Newsom, of all politicians, knows how to leverage that kind of uh, political situation to his advantage.
0: So to summarize this in my shocked voice, not so shocked, <laughs> is um, so what you're saying is if I were a business owner, if I wanted to open up, I just had to fill somebody's coffers or
1: contribute. Right, it's It's your uh, protection money, right? Right. The the local thug that stops by and says, "Gosh, man, I noticed your windows up front haven't been smashed for a while. I'll make sure that doesn't happen for what, five hundred bucks a month? Um, It's that sort of stuff. That's what happens in California. It's a complete kleptocracy here, and so these bills are not meant to protect workers. They're meant to protect the thugocracy. and so that's where we are in California, and it's despicable.
0: Okay, so moving on from AB5, um, so, well, let me touch on this point with AB5 for a second, because that is the ABC test that is in AB5 is in the PRO Act, which is federal legislation. In California, you guys had carve-outs for specific industries and job classifications, which I believe is nearly impossible to do for a federal bill like the PRO Act. Right.
1: Yeah, it would be very difficult. And every state does their thing differently, right? And so when you have different classifications about different kind of work requirements and, you know, consultant agreements and those kinds of independent worker, then that becomes very confusing. One of the stories I loved during the AB5 debate was the newspaper industry. A lot of people don't know that the newspaper industry is very segmented and they they hire tons of contractors. So you know, those that are delivering the papers and doing, you know, different sales and all that kind of stuff. Well, the bill, A B five, actually was going to kill off all the black and ethnic newspapers. Cause they could their margins were so thin, there was no way they could afford the cost of paying for an employee, the benefits, this you know, the salaries, the um, the health care. There was no way they could afford that and print papers for a lot of these places. And so um, uh, Loretta Gonzalez actually had to author the bill to put them back in as an exemption for one year so they could figure out how to, you know, operate. And it was one of the few times I've seen a legislator get up in front of a committee and beg the committee not to pass their bill. They passed the bill, you know, she passed the bill under duress. She was not happy about it. And she was kind of humiliated through the whole thing. Um, it's that kind of process that happens all the time. It's basically, it's a kneecapping operation. And if you don't get in line, you will be kneecapped.
0: So, um, for the listeners, Lorena Gonzalez was a Teamster official or organizer who became a assembly person in California. Um, she passed and well, she authored and helped pass the AB five, the original AB five and she is now back in the union movement, right? She's head of the. She's
1: one of the top leaders. Yeah, head of the she California. Left the legislature something. early. at right. the labor federation, and um, I, you know, you make one hundred thirteen. I think one hundred thirteen thousand dollars a year, plus per diem. That's not taxed, and as a legislator, um, so that you know, it's a good salary if you're a middle class person in California, um, maybe upper middle class. But for a union labor organizer, you're talking in the high six figures and uh, making good money. So she left it to go get the big bucks,
0: right? Go back in the union movement. Well, as so as part of that role, she's a I would assume a lobbyist now, right?
1: So in California, you're, it's illegal to be a lobbyist for a year after you leave the legislature. Wink, wink, nod, nod. So um, yes, she's still having conversations yes, she's still connecting with people. I mean, one of the bills you and I were talking about earlier, if you want to save it for later, we can, but there was a, a movement that was started by her t- to unionize staff uh, in the legislature. Um, right now, staff and legislature are at-will employees, and I know this, I worked in the legislature for 17 years, five of those as the chief of staff who had to deal with a lot of personnel and HR issues. If you have a staff Uh, that's not compliant or not working or is just politically not expedient you can let them go at will um, without cause most of the time sometimes you, you know cya but the legislature was about to unionize all of its staff as it's unionizing everybody else in the state of california and amazingly that bill didn't pass well that must have been the republicans who didn't do that right 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 yeah the republicans all uh you know all 19 of them out of the 120 members of the legislature and there's a few more right? I I apologize there's like 30 of them um there's not that many of them I'm, so it was I'm saying that with, with yeah, the weekend I mean, and, tongue and, odd. and Yeah yeah in cheek. Uh, so
0: we talked last time um you guys have a the democrats have a super majority right so it doesn't matter how what the republicans do
1: so we call it a super-duper majority, yeah. I mean, it's over two-thirds votes in both houses, the Assembly and the Senate, meaning that they can pass literally any bill they want to. They can do it with an what they call an urgency clause, meaning it takes effect right away, and that usually requires only a two-thirds vote. So if you have more than a two-thirds vote buffer, you can give some of your more um, moderate or compromised Democratic members a pass from time to time they don't have to vote on every terrible bill um and you just move with haste you make sure that you you're going like crazy and so there's a lot of the other thing too is if you want to pass a constitutional amendment in california not just a regular bill that goes in code but you want to put it in the constitution um you need two-thirds in both houses votes you don't need the governor's signature and it goes straight to the ballot and the people vote on it so we're seeing a lot of those kinds of things happen right now, too.
0: So so to clarify, um, on this bill to unionize the California state legislators' staffers, um, the Republicans really had no say whatsoever, and the Democrats who want to unionize everybody didn't want their staff to be unionized. Is that summing, yes.
1: summing it up? Yeah, yes. and, and what they did is they worked really hard to make it difficult for their staff to unionize. Um, And so you had a lot of um, staff that weren't happy about it the last day of session. Well, Lance, that sounds almost hypocritical. Uh, It's hypocritical if you have principles. Okay. Um, If you don't have principles, it's hard to be hypocritical. Really, it's it's force power. In the legislature in California, there are two parties. There's the party of cats, which does whatever it wants and is not organized and is not thoughtful about a lot of big term strategies. And there's the party of the kneecappers. Get in line or we'll take you out. And you can determine which one of those parties. It correlates with the modern Democrat or Republican parties. But in the state of California, we have a massive kneecapping operation. And so when people want to organize In unions or collectively bargain elsewhere, they make it very easy, and and they had several bills this year to do that. But if you want to do it in the legislature, where you're an actual staffer, where you have to produce um, a product, where you have to be at the whim of a of an elected official, twenty four seven, you know, often Saturdays and Sundays, late at night, the legislature didn't get out till one thirty in the morning on Wednesday or on Thursday. Their deadline was for midnight for almost all the bills except for some extraordinary bills they had. And so you have staffers working until 1, 2, or 3 o'clock in the morning on Thursday. If you go to any other job that's collectively bargained, they would say, no, it's past my, past my 35 hours that I'm required to work in the legislature. Not 40 hours. In the legislature, they're only required to work 35 hours to get full-time pay and benefits.
0: Interesting. Um,
1: but legislators know that they can use and abuse these staffers all they want. They can harass them. Um, they can make them do political things. In the legislature, you're vol- told to go walk for members of the legislature or candidates that you may not like. Um, you're told where to go and how long you'll do it, and you're doing that on your own vacation time. So, Vacation time, you may, may have saved up to go to on a vacation with your family or to Disneyland or do something different or take care of a sick parent. No, you're forced to actually go and walk and knock doors in the Central Valley or Inland Empire or L.A. Um, and you can say no, um, but you will all of a sudden find yourself without a job in the legislature.
0: That's... That's fascinating. It's their, their public values are one thing, their private values are something else.
1: Oh yeah, it's, it's completely backwards. And so, you know, there's a little bit of a difference between the two caucuses. The Democratic caucus, basically you go where they tell you and for as long as they tell you and that you do what they tell you. Um, and they may pay for your pizza and hotel. Um, the Republican caucus, it's a little more um, flexible But, you know, they still need to get people out and do the thing. But I would tell you as a staffer, a former staffer for 17 years who's walked and knocked a lot of doors in California, tens if not hundreds of thousands of them, um, I can tell you that on the Republican side, there's a lot more flexibility. And people are usually doing it uh, more because they want to and not because they have to. Um, But it it just – in that kind of job, it's like going to your, I mean, if you ran a bank and the bank owner decided to run for, for office and told all their staffs, so if you want a job here, you'll come and you know campaign for me, uh, we would say no way in the private sector. But in the public sector, while we're not subsidizing it directly with taxpayer dollars, uh, we are doing it indirectly.
0: Explain that.
1: Okay. Well, if you've got a staffer that's working full time. And they're getting benefits and pay. There are ways you can arrange your vacation time to go and campaign for a member that you might be a consultant to. So you're not only paid to do certain things, but you're paid to go and, and also get benefits on the side. So, you know, it's all legal. It's not, it's not illegal. But it's a, a way of, of maximizing those kinds of opportunities. And the Democrats are especially adept at making that happen.
0: So before we move on to AB 257, which is one of the big things I want to talk to you about. Um, and before we move off of the hypocrisy thing, there's another article that was out of the Sacramento Bee this week about Governor Newsom Um threatening to veto the farm worker bill, farm worker union bill, and then democracy now had something about as he buys a $14.5 million vineyard in Napa Valley.
1: I mean, who among us has bought a $14.5 million vineyard in Napa Valley? I mean, honestly. Right. He's part of the common man, right?
0: Well, so I guess my question is that obviously the farm workers are not unionized, um, I think they've got an agricultural union law uh, well, in California. but
1: yeah, yeah, so right now in California, you, um, they do a lot of the forced card check stuff for ag workers. Um, right. And there was a farm here in Central Valley, Garawan, uh Farms, which basically treated their employees incredibly well and uh, took really good care of them. Uh, and many farmers, uh, farms around California actually take really good care of their workers. And the workers don't want to organize because they have a good thing coming. They have a solid job. It's pretty regular. Um, the The owners and the families usually take very good care of them. Um, and so they just want to do their job. And they don't want to organize. But these unions are really um, interested in coming in and organizing for their own power, right? They get money every time somebody joins their union ranks. And not to say that there aren't farms out there that, that aren't as good and haven't treated their farm, uh, their workers appropriately. That happens. That's called life, and it's unfortunate. But um, with the Garawan Farms, they didn't want to be unionized, and the United Farm Workers really, really pushed hard on a whole bunch of gimmicks to make it happen and utilized a lot of different crazy laws within um the uh, California uh, uh, Labor Code and the Ag- Agricultural Code, and you have the agricultural, um, uh, the the Relations Board, Labor Relations Board. Um, you have all these things happening, and it takes an it costs an arm and a leg for these farmers to push back against this forced unionization of employees that don't want to be unionized. And so the law that's trying to be passed, the AEB 2183, to force this is using a lot of the sentiments of, uh, sentimentality of people saying, listen, we can't abuse these farm workers. What, what most people don't understand is that, um, a lot of the costs for food center around your labor. And if you go to other countries like Mexico, They've mechanized a lot of this stuff. Um, and in California, they could mechanize a whole bunch more. Um, and so you've got to wrestle with the, the price of, of food. And when your margins are low and when water is not flowing in California and you have a whole huge labor supply that's out of work and they march 335 miles to the Capitol to make a point, there's a lot of drama there. But uh, to sign this bill to force... Um, ag workers to unionize often against their will seems to me also unconstitutional as well as unethical.
0: Well, and the fascinating thing is that,
1: that Newsom isn't agreeing to it. It's well, we'll see. Right? right. I mean, he says a lot of stuff. I don't believe a word that Gavin Newsom ever says, not one word. Everything he says, poll tested. Everything he says is for some sort of theatrical effect. Um, he has no principles or values. So much so that his own in laws. Did you see this story? His own in laws are donating to uh Governor DeSantis out in Florida. No, they I did not from see California. that California. They moved from California and moved to, to Florida and have donated, I think, fifty thousand dollars to his PAC. Uh, that's a spit in the face when your own in laws <laughs> don't like you that bad, <laughs> bad to donate against your future political opponent.
0: Let's. Well, That's fascinating because it may be DeSantis and and Newsom on the 2024 ballot nationwide.
1: Yeah, it's, um, we'll see what happens up or happens then. But clearly he is running for president. Some people think he's moderating his approach. I don't. I just think he has his finger to the wind. He'll tell people what they want to hear. And uh, if people believe that Gavin Newsom is a moderate, they should spend five seconds looking at every bill he signed in the last four years and realized that he's not i mean he's a very very um government focused person making life miserable for most californians
0: but he does have nice hair <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay so let let's move off of Newsom um so here's what i really wanted to talk to you about and this apparently just passed your senate it's not it's, it's sitting ready to go to Newsom's desk or it's on Newsom's desk this AB-257 Fast Act, do you want to go into the minutiae on that?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. So AB-257 is this attempt um, to force private fast food restaurants and enterprises to collectively bargain. Um, and <laughs> what you do is, you again, you take another low-margin enterprise – that often hires people at the lowest level of employment and gives them either an opportunity to rise up through the ranks um, or to just have a part-time job that's uh, amenable to their schedule. And what you will eventually do is if, you, if this bill is signed into law, the cost for doing fast food restaurants in California will increase so dramatically that mo- many of the stores actually here already are dealing with minimum wage problems. But now if you have to collectively bargain for other things, too, you're going to see a lot more kiosks when you order and less service inside the restaurant. And so if that's what people want, oh, and a burger, that's going to cost you $25. Uh, if that's what you want, then then this is the bill for you. But most businesses realize that they can't lose the amount of leverage, that, small leverage they have over their employees. Um to a bill like this and that it will dramatically impact not only the revenues to their store and the cost they have in overhead and in negotiating salaries but it will also reduce the amount of um of taxes that will be um brought in for these municipalities and so this is this is an act that could very well have dramatic impacts across the board and if it passes in California then it could come to a house, uh legislative house um in your state. So I've got a bunch of questions. Um
0: when you say the the franchises or the individuals, the fast food restaurants are going to have to collectively bargain, they're not doing it individually though, right? It's somehow through no. the so they're some create, board.
1: They're gonna create a government, yeah, a government bureaucracy, a board. So the board is going to have control over that, that process. So yes, that it, it makes it it takes the power and forces it back to the government and doesn't really, or will not take into account the very um, specific and and minute challenges that every franchisee has in California.
0: So if I'm a, I'm a subway shop or a uh, not a subway, but you know, any kind of sandwich shop in West Covina, California, there's going to be a state, board that is going to dictate what I'm going to pay my employees above minimum wage? What kind of, is there more to it? Is there in, scheduling in this? And is there, you know, just cause laws? I'm not sure what else what else is in there. Or are they going to determine all of that?
1: I think a lot of that will be uh, determined. I think much of it will be, um, you know, based upon whatever happens when this board sets wages and hours and work conditions um, it's going to be one of those things where the the corporations that own these fast food chains or the, the people that franchise them will become legally responsible for the wage and hour violations, and it will have trem- you know tremendous impacts that their business models. And um, we've seen this in other places, other industries in California, garment workers and uh, construction workers in, in different uh, you know venues. But it's one of those things where if you've got a bill that now controls one of the smallest margin industries in the state, but one of the most vital, um, it will have a great rippling effect across the board.
0: So, um, now who's going to be doing the negotiations? You're going to have basically um, fast food... I guess business side and then the unions are going to appoint or the government's going to appoint union or worker advocates on the other side of the table. And then they come up with it or does the government state of California dictate what this, the outcome of that bargaining is going to be.
1: It will, there will be a lot of power given to this board um, to even challenge other laws and regulations created by the legislature. Um, which is something that we don't see very often and that um, may impact uh, what the minimum uh, wage looks like as well. So it, it's sitting on the governor's desk right now. We'll see what happens. Um, I think that the, the legislature may have um, gone too far, um, but these kinds of bills take a few years to really get implemented. We'll see what happens
0: So is it, um, who appoints the board? Is that going to be the governor or legislature appoints? I'm assuming somebody in the governor's office would do the appointing, right?
1: Well, usually how these kinds of things work is the legislature gets a handful of people and other people get um, some responsibility. So let me see. I'll actually, I'll look at it really quick because I can't remember how they finally came out with it at the very end. And as Newsom said, he's going to sign it. Uh, there's a good chance. There's a really good chance, but he's been, you know, kind of cagey about how, um, about how he's going to address these kinds of bills. And this was a very contentious bill. I mean, it made it to the very end of the legislative session. And so, you know, there was a lot of intrigue, palace intrigue about how it might work out. the, um, so this is
0: kind of akin to nationalizing an industry, but at the at the state level. I don't know that there's a, a word that would describe nationalizing something at the state level, but it's, it's akin to what it is, right?
1: Yeah. And so I, I found the part we were just talking about, it uh, would create the Fast Food Council within the Department of Industrial Relations that would have 10 members that are appointed by the governor, the speaker of the assembly, and the Senate Rules Committee So, yeah, it's basically the prevailing party in California will determine who is going to sit on this board and how much authority they have. And I think this authority is going to be pretty, pretty broad.
0: And so the so the business interests that are sitting there, those that are responsible for complying with the law um, really are going to have a say if I'm reading into that correctly.
1: Well, yes, I mean, and the governor will come back and legislature will say, well, no, you know, as it says in Section 1471 of the bill, uh, the governor shall appoint the representative of the state agencies, fast food restaurant employees, fast food restaurant franchisees, and fast food franchisors. Um, And then the Senate and the Assembly will appoint an advocate for the fast food restaurant employees. They they will say, well, these guys have a, a seat at the table. They have a chance to talk. They have a chance to adjudicate. But when you're inside that system, you don't have any freedom. You have a gun to your head. And so you don't have to pull the trigger on a gun to be effective in a robbery. And that's what's happening.
0: So with that, um, and this kind of goes back to what you are saying earlier, it sounds as though if business, quote, unquote, air fingers, quote, business wants a seat at the table, they've got to buy their way in, whoever that Person is or people are that are sitting on the council, so they'll probably be, I would think, of the same party as whoever's doing the appointing.
1: Yeah, same party or or um, agreeing with. I mean, in California. It doesn't. It doesn't take a lot to to find the right kind of advocate for you or uh, make the right kind of appointment. And so if, um, for example,
0: I'm I'm the small franchisor in West Covina, California, and I've got three or four stores, I'm not going to have much say at all. No. And if I don't like it, there's Arizona across the border.
1: That's right. And a lot of people, again, most people can't pick up and just get rid of their business and walk away from it. Uh, but what they can do is do it through attrition. So, you know, my father in law ran a, a transmission shop down in Bakersfield. He, did, he took it over from his father. Um, they had been in business since 1949, Dust Bowl baby. And when um, things started going south and the, the regulations and the costs and the, the permits and the inspections and the, you go down the list of every ABC Alphabet Soup um, agency in Bakersfield and the state and the federal government coming after them and checking them on them, um, it just made sense to just cycle down, you know, not hire anybody, stop doing this thing, uh, control your costs, start selling off equipment, lease property in the shop, and eventually you do that and nobody's running the business anymore. It doesn't exist. And so the 20 or 30 employees that you had employed for years who were paying full-time benefits, and um, salaries and vacations too. Who also had families that were paying property taxes and renting nice houses, and you know, traveling the country and doing all those things. All of a sudden, that's not happening anymore. And when it happens at one or two businesses, nobody notices. But when you have a mass migration of people who just attrition out, then it's noticeable. Come to Sacramento sometime when you're up here. Uh, I'll walk you around. I'll show you all the businesses that just keep shutting down. And if you walk down, downtown Sacramento, it's board, It's businesses boarded up everywhere. And that's been a re- redevelopment zone for almost 70 years. Uh, we have a problem in California where we push these franchises out of business. We push, push these small businesses out of business. And we wonder why things aren't working in Sacramento or in the rest of the state.
0: Well, you can convert them into hotels for the homeless.
1: Well, the homeless are already sleeping in them, first of all. Oh. Uh, but yeah, go ahead and convert them. And and then, you know, you just have to still trip on them uh, on the sidewalk in the outside of that, that hotel. For the
0: that, that's another bill that um, is not in the state level, but you may or may not be familiar with down in, in Los Angeles County. I think it's the county, may just be the city they're talking about. Um, it's going to the voters. It's a referendum to force hotels in L.A. County to home or house the homeless. Which, you know, as a business traveler, I think, okay, am I going to want to stay in L.A. County? No. I
1: don't know why anybody goes to L.A. County or San Francisco, to be honest with you. There's two places that are just complete wrecks right now. Um, And it's a problem. And so if you've got L.A., which is... At least in the county, ten point four million people. A quarter of the state of the population of California lives in LA County, and um, if you've got that many people there that are really dictating how policy goes, it's going to drive the rest of the state. Of course, but who, as a restaurant, you know, or not as a uh, as a hotelier, wants to accommodate a whole bunch of people that are fickle, that don't take care of themselves, that are high maintenance? that re- introduce a whole bunch of other issues like cleanliness and, and whatever else uh, into their apartments, their businesses, that they try to maintain at the highest level, how on earth are you going to continue to succeed in, or thrive in an environment like that? And remember, too, a lot of this is being driven also by a lot of the, the, the labor unions. They um, know that if they get people pumping in and pumping out of these hotels, that keeps them gainfully employed and gets more membership. It's, it's not about the hosts or the hotels. It's about um, a lot of times eating these guys from the inside out, wondering what happens when they just decide to close down. And there are a number of hotels in LA County and the city that have shut down and will continue to shut down. Right. And that, so
0: you just kind of touched on it. And I wanted to ask this question about AB 257, who is pushing the FAST Act?
1: Um, I, I, could try to find who the official sponsors are, but basically it's uh, the union interests. I mean, when it comes down to it, pretty much the impetus behind almost all these bills comes down to a union interest to make sure that they have more union jobs.
0: Yeah. I, I, I thought perhaps it might be the SEIU, uh, cause I did see, I think it was Mary Kay Henry came out with a pronouncement after it passed the Senate. So I I wasn't sure if they were the major backer or as UFCW or somebody else, maybe all of them, but.
1: Well, I wouldn't doubt it because what you, what you learn in the legislature is a lot of these, a lot of these bills go through and are used for, uh, you know, they they use these, what they call NASCAR letters, where there's a whole bunch of people that sign on. and, And when you get one union coming in, they're a brother. Remember they're a brotherhood for a lot of these people. They're going to stick behind and, and work together on these different issues. And so they're not going to leave each other out of the process. They'll come together and, and, and organize and, and support these goals together. So
0: so the, the one thing that has been um, nagging at me with regard to the FAST Act and, and doing this fast food board is if, and I'll just use SEIU for example, um, they get this board established. There's no ROI in it that I know of other than because I don't think they're forcing unionization on the fast food workers yet. Right. Well, we'll we'll be, yeah. But there's nothing in the bill that says, and these, these workers will be paying union dues.
1: Well, if they're going to organize, they will pay union dues. Yeah.
0: Right. But that's not in, that's not in the fast act though. Right. The fast food, you know, the AB 257, it doesn't say anything about, um, union dues being required or that's where I'm, I'm curious as to where the ROI is in. So
1: we're establishing this well, sectoral but, bargaining, but never forget that the stuff doesn't have to happen all at once. I mean, a lot of these can be done slowly. So one of the provisions within this is that, um, that it would empower it says if you read the the senate or the yeah the senate health committee analysis which i just pulled up it says it will empower fast food franchises to sue their franchiser if the franchise terms make it impossible for franchisee to comply with the labor laws so there's a whole bunch of lawsuits that are kind of waiting in the wings that's one of them um, and then you've got this you're setting the stage for these minimum wage discussions so the two sponsors of the bill, and you were right, SEIU is one of them, and the other one is five for fifteen. So this is two for that's also SEIU. Correct. But but again, they put different faces on these things. Right. But the whole idea is what is to force um the the collective bargaining of these of these issues and increase um basically the costs uh, of doing business. And you go down the list and there's a whole bunch. I mean, it's like one, two, three, three pages, three pages of uh, supporters, United Farm Workers, unite here, a- AFL-CIO, um, Utility Workers Union of America, um, the Young Democratic Socialists of America, you've of got the ACLU, uh, La Rasa, you have a whole bunch of the, the Labor Councils, these groups are all in it all together. The California Labor Federation, the FLCIO, they're all in it together. And so they're not going to just push to give some sort of, quote unquote, representation to these workers of the franchises. They're going to force the unionization and then the union um, do aspect of these things. It always comes back to the money, always, every single time. So the the
0: closest example I could think of is New York City, which passed its own um its own bills or its own laws specific to fast food. Now they have yet to get dues out of it that I know of. They did state in their, I believe within the last year or two, they posted that workers are free to designate a portion of their paychecks to their representatives. But it was it wasn't, you know, it's not like a contract where they've got to pay union dues as a condition of employment yet.
1: They're free to do it, right? Yeah.
0: It's all, it's, so far, it's all voluntary that I know of. So at some point I, I assume they're going to make it mandatory,
1: but there is nothing voluntary about a union, the way it operates. There's nothing. Um, at some point in time, when you have that much social pressure, when you have that kind of control within your workplace, when you basically can control the schedules, um, the, the staff that come in, who's going to get which, which positions and promotions, that's what unions do. They, it's across the board. My dad was a union member um, begrudgingly for the 30 years he worked for United Airlines. And the stories he would tell me uh, at home every day just were absolutely infuriating about the way that the unions would treat their own employees, and especially those that wanted to be productive. So um you know I, I support the right for people to unite you can do that but I don't support for people the thug, the thuggery that comes along with that and that's often what happens when these bills become law
0: Yeah that's true
1: I it's it's fascinating
0: to watch unfold and I I was commenting to um somebody recently that you know this it because in California you're moving towards this sectoral bargaining. I think I, I responded to a tweet on Twitter about it. And it's similar to what the unions have always wanted for here in the United States from what they've seen in France and Germany and some of the other countries. It's, it's European-style unionism, that sectoral bargaining. It, yeah. And it'll be fascinating to watch in California because, as you said, and you said a long time ago, you know what happens in California moves elsewhere.
1: Yeah, and and it may be European style, but here's the thing: Californians have taken European stuff and Americanized it in a way that uh, it's no longer European. It becomes a very aggressive, left-leaning push towards the way they operate business, and it is fundamentally different than what happens in all these countries which have existed for hundreds of years and generations, you know, where they, they, they have a process that it's not perfect, but everybody kind of, you know, implicitly agrees to it. And, and it works for them in America. We're built on the premise of ultimate liberty and freedom. Do we want? And so to have something come in and uh, from the Europe and say, Hey, you know, we're going to do it this way because that works in Sweden or Finland or great Britain or Germany or wherever else. Um, but we're going to modify it. Usually that modifying means that you've got to put more, um, more, you have to apply more kneecapping, um, to make people comply because we're just, we're just not, I don't know. It, it it takes a lot to compel me to do something. I've got to want to do it on my own. And most Americans are the same way.
0: Well, that's uh, not to get off on a tangent. That's kind of, um, my beliefs, as I came up through the union movement, and that's what Samuel Gompers was all about, which was voluntarism, not compulsion. But that conversation gets lost with today's unions; they're all about yeah. Compulsion. You name,
1: you name, you name one union that does voluntarism these days. It doesn't happen, right? And so that's my problem with it. And in fact, a lot of it has to do with the fact that most of these unions don't compete now anymore. They're all massive conglomerates, and so there's not like inner, you know two or three unions in a shop competing for a better contract or a better way of treating their businesses or working in collaboration with management who wants to be cooperative, who wants to help their workers, who wants to make workplace conditions better and, and provide for retirements and benefits and all those things. I know a lot of good business owners that want to take care of their employees, but they don't want to do it at the point of a gun. And that's what happens with unionization.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting with regard to the competition or lack thereof with unions. Um, I've been watching the Starbucks campaigns unfold, and I think there was a couple stores in the upper Midwest that unionized. Of course, the SEIU, Starbucks Workers United, is the one that's pushing the unionization all to Starbucks except for a couple that I believe became represented by the United Food and Commercial Workers. And then if you look at like the marijuana or cannabis industry, we don't say marijuana for whatever reason, um, there you've got a bunch of different unions going after in different states, but the industry as a whole. So you got the Teamsters, you've got the UFCW, I think SEIU a little bit, um, but they're, they are competing for this the scraps, so to speak. Like they're all kind of jumping on the pile of scraps. It's fascinating to watch. And and then if you look at the Amazon labor union, um, and this is where I think unions are going to have to, they're going to struggle with this unless they do what they're doing in California and make it part of the government, is there's a whole move with younger workers to go more independent union as opposed to part of the big corporate structure of say the Teamsters. And that's that's gonna be fascinating to watch as time goes on. I think well we may see we also, starting we may yeah, see I, it start to unfold next year.
1: I agree with you, but I think there's also generational changes, right? So we're yeah. not sending kids off to the factories anymore. And and frankly, not a lot of kids are doing fast food anymore either. So this is right. going to impact a lot of people who've made fast food their career of choice. And it's going to make it very difficult for a an employer to to assent to the needs of an aging workforce that require more pay and more benefits and more, um, you know, more health care than a younger workforce, which you could hire and fire at will when I was a kid. Um, my kids are doing a lot of, I mean, the, the amount of flexibility kids have these days to do work, it's astounding. Um, so, you know, the ones that are enterprising are not going to be going this direction anyway, Uh, I think that the union union model um, either has to dramatically change or it is going to die and it's going to die underneath its own weight.
0: Yeah, well, so I don't know if you keep up with this to this level, but like Liz Shuler, who's the president of the AFL-CIO, came out, uh, she said it a couple of times, but it was in the news yesterday, that she wants to have a million new members of unions within the next 10 years, which is 100,000 a year. And then you just hit on the boomers. I'm wondering if that will even keep up with the attrition rates, if they're to be successful with it, the attrition rates of all the boomers who are retiring, and getting out of the workforce. Can't really
1: still- get, I can barely get anybody to apply for the, I I I have vacant positions at my job and I can't tell you how many people I've, I've interviewed for a few of them. And it's impossible to hire anybody right now. I mean, it's right. like, it's literally impossible. And then part of that's probably the pandemic and, and those issues, but I struggle to get, I, I've been working for looking for a key person for almost a year and, and it's, it's very difficult. So if I'm having that kind of problem here and I've talked to other employers and, you know, around my area, in my neighborhood, my community, they're having the same problem. So it's not just a, a worker Fatigue. It's a whole generational problem. I saw a story this morning before you and I clicked on that we have these these people that are silently quitting their jobs. You know, they start for a day or two, they don't like it. They just the quiet quitting,
0: or is that the ghost? the
1: quiet quitters? Yeah, yeah. They just they they ghost you, and I can't tell you how often that's happened to me and friends of mine in their businesses. And they're just ripping their hair out. They just need somebody to show up and do a simple job, and they have no idea if this person's going to last one of the few hours. My sons are working at a, at a facility. I won't go into details, but they're teenage boys, and this is a job probably for, you know, decently strong men. It's a physical job, but they will take anybody who shows up. They will literally will hire you and start you that day on the spot because they don't know if they're going to keep you around. And it's a hot. It's it's a good job. Ah, uh, but they can't seem to keep anybody around. So, let alone organizing for these people, you have to get people to show up and stick around for the job long enough to organize, right?
0: That well, yeah, and that is an issue that that um, poses a dilemma for the unions. Chris Smalls, who organized the Amazon warehouse out in Staten Island, talked about that. The reason they filed with barely thirty percent in in Staten Island because the turnover is too high. So yeah. they just got their thirty percent and filed.
1: Yeah. No, and and that suggests that there is a massive trend and change that cannot be accommodated by these new laws. AB two fifty seven, well as well intended as it is, and um, as quickly as they try to implement it, will be uh, obsolete by the time that it's fully implemented. Uh, the the business committee will will navigate so quickly it will make the government boards head spin. And then they'll have to come back, and this happens all the time in California state lawmaking, they'll have to come back to fix a law that was obsolete before it got printed. Um, that's where we're at right now in California.
0: It's crazy. Well, what else is going on? Uh, we've been on close to an hour, and I, I don't want to talk uh, take your time on a Friday before Labor Day weekend. But any, any other big Fine. things that the rest of the country needs to be wary of?
1: Well, in California, I would say watch your education system. If we're talking about labor issues, remember that if you don't have an educational workforce or an educated workforce, you're not going to be able to have workers. And um, a lot of the states, uh, the New York Times put out a piece yesterday showing that um, a, mass, a, mass, a vast majority of third graders have lost several years of education because of the pandemic shutdown. Um, So our literacy rates are struggling in California. It's 50th in the nation in literacy. Um, Our kids are not, um, 60% of the kids are not at grade level um, literacy. And so if we're putting out that kind of workforce, I'm really concerned about the state of, of, of the future for any job that requires a decent amount of reading and critical analysis and thinking. Um, or communication. And so we've really got to be redoubling our efforts in our schools and education systems within our communities and our states. I'm working really hard on those kinds of issues. And so um, if you don't think that education or school issues apply to you because you don't have kids in the system or your kids go to private school or homeschool, you think twice. Because if you can't get the schools working and going in the right direction, you won't have a workforce that can and act, uh, take care of you when you're old and in retirement and need their services.
0: Yeah, that that is kind of scary. What? Um, well, and we weren't in great shape before the pandemic, but the the two three years that a lot of kids have missed is to think about the future is really scary.
1: Yeah. So we're watching that. And we're just trying to get involved to make sure that in California we have 2,500 school board seats up for election this November. Um, out of the 944 school districts. And so we're encouraging parent advocates and school choice advocates to get out and run. And and we have an incredible slate of people making the change um, that are going to be good voices on these school boards. And so I'm excited about that. And we're also focusing on things like career technical education and vocational education uh, to make sure that the jobs that, you know, don't need a Harvard or Berkeley or Stanford degree get filled. My brother's a crane operator. My dad was a welder and a mechanic, a decent mechanic. Um, I was an electrician uh, a, a period of time. Um, so we've got to make sure we're doing these kinds of things to to move forward on on an economy that works. We can't sit all behind a, a computer and do these things all day, as fun as it is, without some sort of workforce that's taking care of all the intensive labor pieces.
0: Yeah, I agree. I've I've kind of you know I, I started my work and career blue collar work my way up uh, in in the union side and got my degree later. And, and I'm not a huge, huge proponent of college, unless you are, you're going into a profession that needs, you know, some sort of degree, lawyer, doctor, you know, whatever. Well, Engineering. Right now,
1: yeah. You might as well just take a hundred thousand dollars and just burn it over the toilet um, right. to go right. to a lot of colleges right now. So I agree with you. In fact, my kids and I, we have this conversation, uh, I'm a college graduate, and my wife is, I have a master's degree, I'm a huge advocate for education, but what's happened to a lot of our um, universities is they become complete waste of money, and the administrative bloat and the complete wokeism in a lot of these campuses is just, it's too much to handle. So why pay um, you know tens of thousands of dollars every year for the privilege of not getting an education? My second son right now, is he's dual enrolled in the community college here as a sophomore in high school. He will have an associate's degree by the time he graduates. He won't won't have to go to four-year university if he doesn't want to, and there are all sorts of programs he's doing he will get a job probably right out of high school making a good amount of money that I didn't make until five years after I had my master's degree. So those are the kinds of options that I think kids have these days they should be taking.
0: And without the college debt that somebody else is going to have to pay for. Agreed. Yeah. Well, Lance, let the listeners know where they can find you. I'll post the links under the audio portion of this episode. California Policy Center.
1: CaliforniaPolicy.org. You can find me there. I also happen to be doing this other thing, running for statewide office, as superintendent of public instruction in California. So you can check out LanceChristensen.com if you want to see what's going on there too.
0: Okay. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking a Friday afternoon talking to us. appreciate it, especially before holiday weekend. Hope you and your family have a happy Labor Day. All right. We'll do it again. No problem. (laughs) All right. Sounds good. Thank you, sir. Talk to you later. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, that was Lance Christensen from the California Policy Center. And as I mentioned earlier and to him, I appreciated him coming on on a Friday afternoon before Labor Day weekend. And as always, he's a fount of information or or a great resource. Um, As I usually do, I'm going to leave some links to articles as well as his information under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. And keep an eye on AB 257 or the FAST Act. If it becomes law out in California, it is a game changer for the fast food industry. And if they start to do that in other areas or in other states, just watch. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. Have a great Labor Day weekend. And if you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Have a great weekend. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.